following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. text. We're in Joshua this morning. Three weeks ago, I kicked off the series, which we entitled A New Beginning. And if you are new with us, I want to say hi to you. Uh, you've joined the very last week of our series in the book of Joshua. And we've been gleaning from the book and thinking about timeless principles and lessons from the book as we step into this new year and this new era in the life of PCC. And so this morning, I've not only got the privilege of starting the series, but also concluding it. And so we find ourselves this morning in chapter 23 of Joshua. And these are Joshua's final dying words. And they're, so they're hugely significant. And I pray that the Lord would bless them t- to us as we move through them. Verse 1. After a long time had passed, and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, Joshua, by then a very old man, summoned all Israel, their elders, leaders. Blowing the pages, where am I? And, and, and officials, and said to them, I am very old. You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Remember, that's the key word I want us to think about this morning. Remember, remember. Remember how I have allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the land of the nations that remain. The nations I conquered between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea in the west. The Lord your God himself will push them out for your sake. He will drive them out before you and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. But you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. One of you, listen to verse 10, one of you routes a thousand. What a powerful image. Why? Because the Lord your God fights for you, just as he promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, And if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Now I am about to go the way of all the earth. He's he's about to die. His final words. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. But just as all the good things the Lord your God has promised you have come to you, so he will bring on you all the evil things he has threatened until the Lord your God has destroyed you from this good land he has given you. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. I've entitled the message this morning, Staying True to the End. Staying True to the End. Let's pray. 
Father, we need to hear you. Not a man in a pulpit. We need to hear you. We need to hear your voice speak from your word with authority and life and transformative power. Lord, I pray, help us open our minds and our hearts to receive your word, your voice this morning. Bring life, bring correction, bring challenge, but most of all, bring hope. Hope to us, Lord God. Help us stay true to you to the very end. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here in chapters 23 and 24, we have a record, a very important record, of Joshua's final dying words. And what's intriguing is that when you investigate and actually examine his final words, they reveal that his chief concern, his main concern, was not with his own well-being, not for himself, but rather for the future well-being of those he had loved and served courageously and faithfully his whole life, namely the nation of Israel, the people of God. And so as we conclude this mini-series in the book of Joshua this morning, we would be wise to pay attention, close attention to his dying words because they unearth, they reveal at least three timeless truths that still speak with clarity and authority in our own day. And so these three timeless truths that his dying final words unearth are... Number one, the need to remember. I'll explain each of these. The need to remember. Number two, the need to love. And number three, and I really do need to explain this one, the need to fear. The need to remember, the need to love, the need to fear. So the need to remember. Joshua has gathered the nation's leaders together in in order to encourage them to remain loyal to God by keeping their side of the covenant, the covenant that God instituted and pulled together at Mount Sinai. Now, I just used a word, a term that is massively important in Scripture. It's a term that we Christians really need to thoroughly understand. And also, it's an old-fashioned word, an old-fashioned sounding word. And maybe some of you younger ones picked up on the term, the word. And of course, that word is covenant. Covenant. I used it twice. Essentially, what Joshua is doing here in these two concluding chapters, he's renewing the covenant with the people of God. And so for us, we need to understand what this incredible word means, covenant, what, what, what it conveys. And so uh, help, uh, hopefully this is a more accessible definition of the term covenant because this is big. A covenant is a relationship. Listen that's more intimate and loving than a mere legal contract. That is, it's more precious than a piece of paper. And and yet, it's more binding and durable than mere personal affection. That is, a covenant is a bond of love made more intimate and solid because it is legal. All right, so it's, it's more than just having the hots for someone. And it's a lot more than just having this cold contract, this piece of paper. It's the best of both worlds. In other words... A covenant relationship is the polar opposite to a consumer relationship in which the connection or the heat is maintained only if it serves the self-interests of each person in the relationship. That's the covenant. This is what covenant conveys, and this is what God entered into with the people of God at Sinai under the supervision of Moses. And so here's Joshua 
Moses' faithful, courageous successor, this great spiritual and military leader, essentially gathering the troops together and saying to them, come on team, we've got to maintain loyalty to God. We've got to remain true to this side of the covenant, our side of the covenant, this commitment, this relationship that's more precious than a piece of paper and yet more binding and accountable than a mere high school crush. And so to compel them and encourage them to be faithful to the covenant, he gets them to what? Remember. Remember. He encourages them to remember. Church, there is a profound connection in Scripture between loyalty to God and remembering God, in particular his goodness. There's a connection. If you want to be loyal to God and remain faithful to him, you've got to remember his faithfulness to you, his goodness. And so this is what Joshua does in our text. He reminds them of God's goodness in two ways, his past acts of deliverance and his rock-solid promises. Listen to verse 3. He says, you yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God done to all the nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. That's a staggering thought. This was a backwater nation. This was a puny nation. He's almighty God, the creator of all things, saying, yeah, I'll fight for you. Incredible. Uh, Joshua says pretty much the same thing in verses 9 and 10. He says, the Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations, To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. One of you routes a thousand. How? Because the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised. And so Joshua is saying to the people of God, and by way of extension to us as well, he's saying, don't forget the Lord's goodness. Don't forget the fact that when you came into the promised land, when you entered in, the promised land was occupied by big nations, scary nations, dinosaur-like nations compared to you. You're like a mosquito-like nation in comparison, and yet God was your commander-in-chief. He saved you and protected you from being squashed by them. He fought for you as your warrior king. He overcame the giants and the, and, and the, the, the enemies for you. And so don't forget his goodness. Don't forget his past acts of deliverance and kindness. But there's more. He says, not only are you, the people of God, to remember his past acts of goodness, but also you're to remember his trustworthiness, his rock-solid promises, because he has not only started a good work in the nation, but he promises to see it through to completion. Listen to verses 4 and 5. He says, remember how I've allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the land of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered. Do you hear that? He's saying there are still nations, enemy nations in the land, and yet you've already been allotted their land. <laughs> That's God's way of saying, um, it's as good as done. If, if you remain in me, if you are loyal to me, it's as good as done. I've started this work, I've started to push out various nations, and I will continue to do that. Why? Because I'm the promise-making God, and I'm also the promise-keeping God. He goes on to say, verse uh, 5, he says, The Lord your God himself will push them out for your sake, for your sake. He will drive them out before you, and you will take possession of the land as the Lord your God promised you. And so again, he's saying, whatever you do, don't take your eyes, don't take your heart off the fact of God's goodness. He has been good to you in the past, and he promises to be good to you in the future. Church, and this is, this is a, a little amusing, but the reason why so much ink is spilt in chapters 13 through to 22, you know, he preached on it last week, the allotment of the land, is because of this, because of God's faithfulness. A little confession to make. Um, 
when I was reading those chapters, when I was preparing to preach on the, uh, the, the book, you know, do this series, it's always a good idea to do that first, actually read the book before you teach on it. And so I decided to do that, and um, I read the first 12 chapters, and they were really exciting. And then I got to chapter 13. This is confession time. You know what I did? <clears throat> I skipped it. Oh, I didn't like that. Some of those glazes, those looks I'm receiving. Uh, I'll go into chapter 14, and it's kind of exciting. It's about Caleb and his wholehearted devotion to God. And I thought, yeah, I want to be like Caleb. I want the church to be like Caleb. And then I got to chapter 15, the allotment of the land again, the passing down of the land. And guess what I did? I skipped it. All the way to 22, I skipped, 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 skipped. I was like Skippy the bush kangaroo. See, I was just kind of leaping over the chapters, all the allotment of the land. Why? Because it's boring. It's boring. It's like reading a road map without any pictures. It's seriously boring. It's like really dry. But here's the thing, church. Even though we find it dry, for us it's like, oh, great bedtime reading. For the Jew, it wasn't, uh, it was yes. It was yes. That's why they detail it so, so, so much. Well, so much ink is spilt detailing the allotment of the land. This tribe went there. This tribe went there. Why? Because it's about God being the promise keeper. That's why, that's the big idea of the chapters. God had made the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're going to have this spacious land, this beautiful land. And here they were finally in the land. And so they say, we're not going to waste this moment. We're going to actually write 10 chapters on it. (laughs) Joshua is saying, look, not one promise the Lord made to you fouled. Verse 14. He says it three times. He doesn't foul. He doesn't foul. He says, oh, we foul. But he says that God never fouls. He is not only the promise maker. He's the promise keeper. And, and church, the same applies to, to us as well today. If we want to remain loyal to God, then we also need to remember his past acts of deliverance and his promises, because his promises are rock solid. And, and church, this is why I love the book of Romans. This is why I spend a lot of time in the book of Romans, in particular, Romans chapter 8. You know, some, some teachers call Romans chapter 8 the great eight, the great eight, because of its breathtaking landscape of salvation. Because in this chapter, Paul details for us God's past acts of deliverance. He says that we in Christ have been justified. Do you know what that means? Justification? It means that God in our lives, in Jesus, has dealt with the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin. We are therefore now not under condemnation, it says in verse 1. No penalty to face before Almighty God. This is incredible. But Romans 8 goes on to say something even more special. It says not only has God done this past act of deliverance, namely dealing with the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin. Because it says in verse 2, that because we are in Christ, this one who conquered sin and death, we have overcome the power of sin and death. That he has transferred us from this realm of darkness, this realm of decay, this realm of death, and transferred us into this realm of life and wholeness and favor. And so we are no longer under the penalty of sin, nor the power of sin, which means this. Yes, sin is still in the car of our hearts, in the car of our lives, but it's no longer in the driving seat. It's no longer calling the shots. Why? Because Jesus now occupies our hearts in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's Lord. He's Master. We are under His loving leadership and authority, and He calls the shots. And although we still feel at times the influence of sin, it's in the back seat, and it should be in the boot. We should say, you're no longer my master, because God has delivered me from the power of sin. He's dealt with the penalty of sin, the power of sin, but Romans chapter 8 gets even better. 
because also it has these rock-solid promises. God has not only justified us and regenerated us, sanctified us, but he's also promised to glorify us, which means that he will deal with the presence of sin. Once and for all in our lives, we'll no longer be able to sin in glory. That's incredible. No longer any temptation. If you've walked, for the, you've walked with the Lord for some time, you would know that temptation is horrible. When you resist it, it's just, ah. And yet in glory, there will be no tempter, which means there will be no temptation. God will deal squarely forever with the presence of sin. And all this is detailed and explained in this glorious chapter, the great eight, Romans chapter eight. And so here comes a little plug, especially for you younger ones. This year, you would do well to spend some time, some quality time in Romans chapter eight. It has changed my life. And, and, and I don't mean to sound like a used car salesman when I say that. Like seriously, I, I commend Romans chapter 8 to you. It has changed my life, and it will change your life as well. Read it through this year. You don't have to be like Usain Bolt, kind of just skip through it, you know, like a mad dash. You can just take your time, take it slow, read it slowly, pray it through more importantly. If you need some entry-level commentaries, I'm happy to give those to you just so that you can start to understand the wonder, the breathtaking landscape of salvation described and detailed in Romans chapter 8, the great 8. Your life will never be the same again because you'll be reminded by the Holy Spirit again and again of God's incredible goodness, his past acts of deliverance and his rock-solid promises. And in remembering, you'll be more likely to remain loyal to him. So that's the first thing, the need to remember. Number two, the need to love. In verse 11, Joshua says this summary statement. He says, be very careful to love the Lord your God. Be very careful. And he tells us how. He says, you're to love him, you're to devote yourself to him. And he says, this is how. This is the practical dimensions of, of actually what it means to love the Lord. He tells us in verse 6, he says two things. This is how love for God is to be expressed. Number one, he says, you've got to be very strong. Now, he doesn't mean being macho. He doesn't mean being like Arnold Schwarzenegger or being like a UFC fighter. He's talking about being strong in God. He's talking about anchoring your life and your heart in him because the, the preceding verses is God, you know, he's, he's making these promises. And so you're to take God literally at his word. He's faithful. And so he said it, I believe that sells it kind of thing. That, that's how we express our love to God. We actually trust him. We trust him. We say, you are trustworthy and I'm going to express my love for you by actually trusting you, by taking your word uh, uh, to heart. And, and actually believing it. But then he goes on. He says, not only are we to be very strong, but he says, you are to be very careful. We're to exhibit this, faith, uh, this careful obedience. He says, you're to be very careful and, and don't deviate from God's plan. In other words, he's saying, don't be like jellyfish. You ever seen jellyfish? They just go with the flow, don't they? The current goes left, the tide goes left, they go left. When the tide goes right, they go right. They seem so unintentional, don't they? Just kind of blobbing along, jellyfish. We're not to be like that. If society goes left, we're not just to go left for the sake of going left. Or the culture goes right, we're not to go right for the sake of going right. We're to be wise. We're to be more like dolphins because they go against the current. They go against the tide. They, go, they swim upstream. We're to be people of scripture, not people of culture. And I don't mean that culture is bad 
all the time. It's not. I mean, who enjoyed Australia Day? The beach culture. I did. And I didn't get burnt. Nathan, where are you? I don't know how, mate, your skin burns. But anyhow, that's just another matter. You got burnt. I didn't because I was wise. I put sunscreen on. <laughs> I learned the lesson when I was in Port Macquarie with uh, Stans and Josephine and the girls. We went there for a day trip, and it was really kind of overcast. We think, oh, you know, sunscreen. <laughs> Bad move. I got seriously burnt big time. And now I'm peeling big time as well. So we've got to be a people of Scripture, dolphins, not like jellyfish. And in doing that, we express our love for God by being strong in him, taking him at his word, but also obeying his word. Remember what Jesus says in John chapter 14. In fact, he says it twice for emphasis sake so that we don't miss it. He says, if you love me, what does he say? Come on. Didn't hear you. A bit deaf. If you love me, Thank you, Grace. Thank you, Grace. You'll keep my commands. In other words, you'll follow me. You, you'll do what I say. Well, what's the implication? If we don't obey his commands, then what? We don't love him. <laughs> Simple. doesn't matter how loud we sing. doesn't matter how many times we say, I love you, I love you, I love you. If we don't obey him, according to Jesus, then we don't love him. Because obeying him, being careful not to deviate, is the way we express our love and devotion to him, you see. And so we need to be a people who not only remember, but a people also who love, love him. Thirdly, the need to fear, the need to fear. Now, I said at the beginning, I need to explain this, and I do. Because maybe in some of your minds, you're thinking, um, love, fear, don't these contradict? Like oil and water, that don't go together. How do these things come together? And they do in Scripture. They come together wonderfully, the, the, the fear of the Lord, this healthy fear of God. And so I want to give you this story just as a kind of helpful illustration to understand what I refer when I say to, you know, for us to be a people that need to fear. And more importantly, what Joshua actually stresses uh, in verse 12 down to the end of the chapter, because he's all about cautioning and warning the people, as we read, you would have remembered. Uh, it's all about cautioning the nation to have this healthy fear of God. So here's the story. True story. Kaylee, our daughter, uh, she's now six, but when she was 18 months, she was like the kamikaze of the beach. Right? She was like a kamikaze pilot when it came to the beach. Right? When, when Nat and I would get to the, the beach, we would put our stuff down, and before we could do that, she was off. She was off, 18 months old, tiny little frame, a uh, little cozy, and we put her down in the sand. She'd be like, scarper off, make a beeline to the water, and she'll be giggling all the way. <laughs> That's an 18 month. <laughs> and then she'll get to the water. You know what she'll do? She'll just keep going. Just keep going. She went into the water, and often big waves would come and just kind of knock her over, and she would tumble, and she would get up, kind of startled, and she would have sand in her hair and sand in her eyes and sand in her cozy, and you know what she'll do? She would laugh, <laughs> and then she would do it again. She would go back into the water and get smashed by another wave, and she would tumble even more. And this time she'd have more sand in her hair and more sand in her eyes and more sand in her mouth and more sand in her cozy, and she would get straight back up and do it all over again. Like the troll song, you know, you can knock me down, I'm going to get straight back up and do it again. And that's exactly what she would use to do. She'd straight back in the water and tumble, and you know the story. And it was cute, but it was also terrifying for us as parents. It was nerve-wracking. I mean, Nat and I, the, the days of sitting there on the beach, reading a nice book, having a nice marital conversation were well and truly over because our little kid wasn't a normal kid. She didn't just play, you know, with the sandcastles and the buckets. No, she just wanted to be in the ocean. So we were terrified. Where, where's Kaylee? Oh, there she is again, making a beeline <laughs> for the water. And so as parents, we obviously had to teach her to have what? A healthy fear of the ocean. 
we're just saying, oh, you know, they're, they're little rips. And, and I mean, she didn't give rip a rip about rips. She was like, no fear at all. And, and, and just, you know, these big waves, you can get hurt. And so we had to try and instill this healthy fear of the ocean. Why? Because we were bad parents? Wanting to ruin and diminish her enjoyment of the beach? No, the exact opposite. We wanted to maximize her enjoyment of the beach by having this healthy fear of the ocean. You see, this is what Joshua is doing here. In verses 12 through to the end of the chapter, he's seeking to instill a healthy fear of God in the nation so that they would remain within the boundaries, that they would stay true to God, and by doing that, experience lasting satisfaction in the land. You see, the promised land was given by God's unconditional favor. It was unconditional. He kept the promise, but enjoyment in the land was conditional. It was conditional. They had to obey God. And so here's Joshua saying, look, just stay within the flags, all right? Don't get taken out in a rip because you will end up in exile if you don't obey God. And so he's not being a killjoy here. Listen to his words, verse 16. He says, if you violate the covenant, this this relationship that's more sweeter than a mere piece of paper and, and more binding and accountable than a high school crush, this covenant which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. The Lord's anger, and that's a good thing. This is his jealous anger as a loving, loyal husband, watching his wife flirt with another guy. That kind of anger, it's a good thing. Us husbands need that. I mean, hopefully we'll never see our wives do that. But, but if we ever do, if we're just like okay with that, oh, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> that's sin. God doesn't sin. When he sees his wife, namely the nation, do that, that arouses anger, this jealous, good anger. He says, the Lord's anger will burn against you, and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given to you. And so he's saying, don't violate this covenant, this relationship, by associating with the other nations, by forming treaties with them, by marrying their their women, or by following their religious practices. Why? Because God's a big, fat killjoy? No. He wants you to experience life and joy and satisfaction in the land. And the same applies to us. If we want to experience life and liberty and freedom and satisfaction in life, then we need to live between the flags. We need to stay within the boundaries. Why? Why? Because because God knows what's best. Listen, if you've ever doubted that the fear of the Lord is a good thing, then then let me read to you Proverbs 14.27. This should put it beyond doubt. The Proverbs writer, he says this, the fear of the Lord is what? A bar of soap in your mouth? Vinegar in your eyes? A noose around your neck? No, no, he says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Everyone wants life, life, life. Well, it's found here, the fear of the Lord, turning a person from the snares of death, from the traps of death. And so this is why the Lord wants us as his people to live between the flags, to obey him, to remember him, to love him and express that love by taking him at his word and by fleshing that out and actually obeying his word because he wants us to experience life. And some of you know from experience, when you actually swim outside of the flags, there are rips and you get taken out and you get led astray and there's only misery and there's only frustration. There's only bitterness there, right? Some of you are like, "Uh uh-huh, I've done that way too many times. And I don't do it any longer. Why? Because the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. 
It's good. God has always desired what's right and what's good and what's best for us, his people. You know, as, as a cross-reference, I, I stumbled across this passage in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 3. And this is a painstaking, this is a heart-rendering uh, verse and passage because it communicates God's heart for his people and, and, and by way of extension for all of us. Listen to his words here. This is God speaking. He says, I thought to myself, he's speaking to the nation, I would love to treat you as my own children. I wanted nothing more than to give you this beautiful land, the finest possession in the world. I look forward to you calling me Father, and I wanted you never to turn away from me. Do you hear God's heart? Do you hear it? It's not a cold heart. This is not the heart of some abuser who's out to ruin our lives. This is the heart of a father who wants what's best for his people. But listen to the tragedy, verse 20. He says, but you have been unfaithful to me. And so first he was speaking as a father to the people. Now as a husband to the people, he says, you people of Israel, you've been unfaithful. You have been like a faithless wife who leaves her husband. You see, this was the great tragedy, the sad reality that the Israelites did not heed Joshua's words. They refused to drink from the fountain of life, the fear of the Lord. And, and I pray that we, we are celebrating our 40th anniversary, I pray for the next 40 years and beyond until Jesus comes, we as a church would never ever stop drinking from the fountain of life, the fear of the Lord. That we would remember him, that we would be a people that remember his past acts of deliverance in Jesus and his rock-solid promises that he's made to us, that we would continue to be a people who love him and love each other. And yet here's the big question that I want to conclude this series on and this sermon on, and it's this, how? How are we going to become this kind of a people? I mean, we've stipulated, we've specified many things in this series. And I, and I hope they haven't been just burdens on your shoulders. Like, you know, we've got to be a people of the word, the written word and the living word. We've got to be a people of witness. We've got to leave a legacy. We've got to be a people who take risks for Jesus. And then Andy said, you know, we've got to realize that we fight from victory, not for victory. That we've got to be careful to give God the glory and the fame when he gives the breakthrough. We've, we've got to be careful to give him all the honor and all the glory. And also he mentioned, you know, that when we find ourselves in storms, we're to trust in him. And then last week, Hill said wonderfully, you know, that we're not to live on the periphery, but we're to be clicked in to Jesus. We're to serve him boots and all this year, 2018. He said, you know, we're to go the distance. It's not to be this Usain Bolt thing where we just do the dash. No, it's going the distance. It's a marathon run. And yet here's the question. How are we going to do all those things? What's going to give us the motivating power to want to do all the things that we've specified in this series? Church, listen. If sermons just become, you've got to do this, you've got to be that way, you're to avoid that, you're to pursue that. If it remains just that, then listen, our preaching will not be Christian. We're not a Christian. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? You place all these burdens on the people and you, you don't lift a finger to help them. In other words, you tell them good things, right things. You tell them to go here, do that, do this. And you don't motivate them, you don't inspire them. I don't want our preaching at PCC to become that. Just here's another weight so that you start to view sermons as a list of chores, a list of things you've got to do and don't do. Oh, here comes another list. <laughs> that would be powerless. That will end up making you weary and tired and defeated. 
And so we need our preaching to be gospel-empowered. And so here's the answer. How are we going to do all these things that we've specified? Well, it's this. It's this. And I'm going to use covenant language because we've been thinking about the covenant, this commitment that's so faithful and loyal and intimate. One of the big questions in the Old Testament has to do with the nature of the covenant, this thing that we've been thinking about this morning, this relationship. And the question is, in, in light of the nation of Israel's constant failures to remain loyal to God, to keep their side of the relationship. The question is, is the covenant conditional or unconditional? Is it conditional or unconditional? That is, will God say to his people, the covenant is conditional? That is, you've been ungrateful, you've been disloyal, you've been unfaithful, I'm going to forsake you, I'm going to abandon you, I'm going to divorce you. There are some places in the Old Testament that seem to suggest that it is conditional. We've read of one. If you violate the covenant, you'll quickly perish in the land. And yet there are other scriptures that seem to suggest that the covenant is what? Unconditional. It's God saying, look, you have been ungrateful, you have been disloyal, but I won't be disloyal to you. I won't totally or completely abandon you or forsake you. I will bring you back to myself. And we see this in places like Hosea, the minor prophet Hosea. Some of the most heartwarming verses and words in the whole Old Testament are found in that book. Because God says in chapter 2, things like, I'm going to allure you. I'm going to attract you. You've been dirty, wayward, you've been defiant, but I'm going to take you into the wilderness and I'm going to speak tenderly to you. That's intimate, romantic language. And God says, uh, you will no longer call me master, but call me husband. And so according to passages like those, the covenant seems to be unconditional. And so this is the covenantal conundrum. Is it conditional or is it unconditional? It's one of the big questions in the Old Testament. In other words, will God's holiness and justice win the day? Will he judge his people for their waywardness? Or will his grace and his love win the day? Will he bring them back despite their waywardness? And then Jesus comes. And Jesus comes. And he faithfully obeys the covenant. Not just the letter of the law, but in his heart, spiritually. This worshiper of God in spirit and in truth. He, he, he keeps the covenant flawlessly, perfectly. He says, I've come to do your will, oh God. And your will, your word is my life. It's my food. It's my sustenance. He perfectly kept the conditions of the covenant. And yet, what do we see? We see him dying in the dark. We see him on the cross. And what does he cry from the dark in the dark? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. That is, why have you abandoned me? In other words, what he's saying there is, I am uh, receiving and absorbing the curse of a violated covenant upon myself. And here we find the answer. Finally, here we realize the answer. Is the covenant conditional or unconditional? In Jesus, the answer is yes and yes. It's yes and yes. Listen to this. And I want to conclude this sermon, this series with this. And I pray that this would be the motivating power that will cause us to obey Jesus throughout our whole lives. So not only this sermon series, but every sermon we ever hear. This will be the motivating force. Listen, Jesus came and fulfilled the conditions of the covenant so that God could love you unconditionally. Did you hear that? 
is the covenant conditional unconditional? It's yes and Jesus. Jesus came and fulfilled the conditions of the covenant so that God could love you. Make it personal. Make it personal so he could love you unconditionally. So, so that now God doesn't want you to call him master, master, boss, boss, but Abba, Father. And that in Christ he speaks tenderly over you as your Father. And now his great desire that was expressed in, in Jeremiah, oh, how I wish they would call me Father, is finally fulfilled in Christ in our lives because when we call him Father, we rejoice his heart. And he loves us unconditionally because of Jesus. He was violated on the cross. He suffered the curse so that we could know his tender love. Let's pray. For your sake, Jesus, we want to remember your ultimate act of deliverance and freedom on the cross. Lord, we want to remember your great promises made to us. One day, my people, I'm going to be with you in the eternal kingdom. We're going to dine together. That's your promise. And you'll no longer have the presence of sin in your heart. And you'll adore me. And you'll adore my people forever. Lord, we want to remember you. We want to love you, Lord God, because of your great love for us. And we want to obey you, Lord God, wholeheartedly devote ourselves to you, Lord God. We want to take your word. We want to obey your word. Lord, we know that we are flawed, that we, we can't do it perfectly. But Lord God, we're not going to allow ourselves to believe the lie that sin still has the dominance, Lord God, it doesn't, Lord. It's been removed from the driving seat. You're now in the driving seat. And so I pray that we would honor you by obeying you, Lord God, and, and, and fearing you, Lord God, healthy, because you know what's right for us. And Lord, thank you for this series and everything that we've gleaned from the book of Joshua. All these timeless truths, I pray, would be mightily empowered by your cross, by your work for us, by your spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. How about we take a stand, church? And Lord God, thank you. Thank you. If you'd like prayer for anything this morning, anything, uh, don't hesitate. I'd love to pray with you this morning. If not, enjoy morning tea together. Say hi to someone and make sure you catch up with uh, one of the members of the missions team just to hear their stories. Bless you.